Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we hear from your word and seek to understand it, I pray that you would be at work through your spirit, making us more like Jesus. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. You would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I know we have a few visitors, so a word of context first. We, um, for most of this year, have been preaching through the book of Romans, and we are um, not halfway yet, but (laughs) we're getting there. Um, And I say that just because in some ways I'll allude to some things that came in the last few sermons from chapter 6 in a little bit, so just that you're aware of that. But before we talk about this text from Romans 7, I want to go to a completely different place in the Bible, all right? There is this story that Jesus tells, a parable, and it's one of the most famous parables of Jesus, and you probably know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son. You guys know this story? The, the way that, if you, if you don't know it, the way that it's normally told works like this. There's this son, and he comes to his father, and he says, Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. And his father does it. And the son takes the inheritance, and he goes off to a faraway land, and he starts living large. And we're talking like, like hip-hop vid- music video large, right? You know, there's diamonds and women and Dom Perignon, and he, you know, he lives it up, but then the money runs out. Famine hits the land, and he ends up having to work in a pigsty, feeding pig and envy, pigs and envying their food. And the son remembers his father's house and how well even the servants were treated there. And so he goes to see his father and asks to be one of those servants, and he heads home. And his father has been watching for him. And his father comes running down the road, and before the son can even apologize, his father welcomes him back as a son and throws a party to celebrate his return and embraces him and kills the fattened calf. That, if you asked a typical person, is the story of the prodigal son. And I know I'm being cagey about that, but all of that is fine as far as it goes. That is all part of the story that Jesus tells. But it's not really the story as a whole, because that's apparent if you look in Luke 15, 11, where Jesus starts the story, he says, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So this father has two boys. And Jesus does first tell everything we just said about the younger son, all the stuff that we recounted, and we get to the father calling for the fattened calf to be killed, but that's not the end of the story. So then it goes on. Here's how it continues. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So the older son is out in the field. And that's meant to give us a hint of what he's been doing while his younger brother has been living it up. He's been working hard out in the field. And... Staying faithful, and then he gets home and he finds this party for his profligate younger brother, and he does not seem very happy about that. And so it goes on, the older brother became angry, and he refused to go in, and so his father went out and pleaded with him. The brother starts throwing a fit, and his father tries to convince him to come into the party, but this is how the elder brother responds. 
But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Which, stop right there, because that doesn't sound like the kind of attitude you want this brother to have, right? He's been slaving for him and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This brother has been serving his father, but he's been keeping a tab. He's been working to try to force his father to give him what he wants, and he's angry that he doesn't get it. He kept the faith and followed the rules, and why is his younger brother, he demands, then getting the party? And the story ends with the father pleading with him to come into the feast, And the son's still standing out in the darkness. And Jesus doesn't tell us whether he does or not. And that's actually the point of this parable of the two sons. If you go back before the parable and see why Jesus is telling it, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus tells the story of two brothers, and one of them is a sinner in the way that the Pharisees and teachers of the law think about it, and the other one is responsible and hardworking, which the Pharisees and the teachers of the law identify, of course, as themselves, take pride in the fact that they're the elder brother. And what makes the story so shocking is that Jesus does not tell a story that says you should be like the elder brother and not like the younger And he doesn't even tell a story where he says, ideally you be the elder brother, but there's forgiveness if you're the younger. He tells a story where he says that there is salvation for the prodigal son, but for the elder brothers? And he actually leaves the question to hang. And here's why I tell that story to start us off as we talk about Romans 7. So we just read part of it, and it starts with this really shocking statement. But I don't think we always hear how shocking it is. So in Romans 6, we've spent the last three sermons walking through it. Paul spends that whole time discussing the the right motivations for we as Christians to obey and pursue righteousness. And during that, he tells us things like this. He says that we've died to sin, or that we have been set free from sin. Just a few verses before our reading this morning, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And that kind of makes sense to us religiously, that we've died to sin, we've been set free from sin, we're being called to be righteous. We're like, okay, that sounds like what we would expect the Bible to say. But now in chapter 7, Paul pivots. And he says in verse 4 that we have died to the law. And in verse 6, he says that we've been set free from the law. And that seems confusing. Because while it sort of makes sense to us, okay, we've been set free from sin, what does it mean that we have been set free from and died to God's law? And we're going to talk about what that means in a minute. Before we do, I want to touch once more on why that story of the prodigal son is so helpful, because it's the big idea that helps us make sense of this text. Typically, when we talk about the world, we divide it into two groups of people. It's black and white, us and them, the good guys and the bad guys. And we read Romans 6 as saying, be the good guys and not the bad guys. The prodigal son reminds us, and Paul is reminding us in this text, 
that in Christianity there are three kinds of people, not two. There are the good people and the bad people, right? Not that, not that those lines are really as easy to draw, but that looked at outward, there's a sort of respectable, upstanding folks like the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And then there's the openly broken, sinful folks like the, the tax collectors and prostitutes. And then there are Christians. And that is another group entirely. There's three groups of people in Christianity. But to have that make sense, let's walk through our text, right? Keep that big idea in the back of your head, and let's work through Romans 7. So Paul, in verse 1, starts talking about the law. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? And right up front, we need to be clear. What, what, what does Paul mean when he says of the law? So Paul is not talking about the laws of some government. He's not talking about, like, you know, the the laws of the United States. The law in Scripture means something specific. It points to the law of Moses that's found in the Old Testament. Paul is clearly talking about this law because when he gives a specific example in verse 7 of what he's talking about, he says, thou shalt not covet, right? You should not covet. He quotes the Tenth Commandment. So Paul's talking about the law of Moses. But it's a little more complex than that, too, because he's talking about a certain approach to the law as well that exists in his world. In the first place, in Paul's world, the law of Moses has grown even bigger than just the laws that you'd find in the first five books of the Bible. The whole, this whole rabbinic tradition had grown up that added all of these rules around the laws to try to clarify what they meant. So, for instance, the law of Moses says you should keep the Sabbath and not work on it. But we would naturally ask, well, what's work? And that tradition was very happy to clarify for you in exacting detail. And so it would tell you how many miles you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath before it became work. And it would tell you what chores you were and weren't allowed to do. And it would tell you things that, like, if you had to spit on the Sabbath, you had to spit on a rock. Because if you spit in the, the dirt, it was making clay. And, you know, making clay was part of work for people and things like that. There's this whole system of rules And there was a specific approach both to those rules and to the law that underlie them. The Pharisees and religious leaders studied and debated them constantly. And they did that because they believed that if you could just know the law well enough, and if you could just come up with enough rules to surround it, and if you could just study it and internalize it enough, that then you would be righteous. That then you would live a righteous life. They believed that the law could make you righteous. And that is what Paul starts challenging here. He comes out against this view of the law. And he does it by working through what amount to a couple of different limitations of the law. A couple of limitations. The first one, he says, is that the law is temporary. The law is temporary. So if you look at verses 1 through 3, that's the point. Verse 1, which we already read, he says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law? That the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. It has authority only as long as someone lives. And then he gives an example to show what he means. He talks about marriage. And basically what Paul says is that like if there's, you know, a husband and wife um, and the husband dies and then the woman gets married again, that's fine. And we all agree that that's fine, right? But if um, there's a husband and wife and the husband isn't dead and they're still married and the woman goes and gets married again, that that's another kind of thing, right? That that's, that's essentially what he's arguing. And so he's saying that 
there is something temporary somehow about those commands, right? He's saying that um, both that our rules, even if they're right rules, only exist for a time and don't go into eternity. And even somehow God's law, while there's a sense in which it is eternal, there's another sense in which some of it is temporary. We'll get to that in a little bit. And he says that marriage and death offers a good example of that. He says, you get married and you say, till death do us part, and you can live together and be faithful, but if death parts, then the other person is free. I know, by the way, that that particular topic raises some questions for some people about how that works in the resurrection, and, um, and the simplest answer, the most biblical answer, is mostly that I don't know. Um, even, even Jesus in Matthew 22, when he... Um, when he's asked about it by the scribes, he basically gives the answer of, yeah, you know, things are different then somehow, um, but doesn't explain it more than that. But Paul's point, right, isn't to go into detail about that specific question, but to make this broader point that as important as those rules are for us and God's law is for us about marriage, it's not, in some sense, eternal. And so we shouldn't confuse it with eternal things. And confusing what is passing, or for this age with what is eternal, is something that I think we do a lot. Confusing those sorts of things with the deepest things of God, even if it's maybe not about that specific issue that it is in Rome, happens all the time. In the first place, it happens a lot with rules that we make up. Rules that aren't ultimately in the Bible at all. I mean, I regularly talk to people who try to express to me what it means to be a Christian— And it's some list of rules, like Christians don't drink or smoke or chew or dance or play cards or go into bars or watch movies that have more than a PG-13 rating or whatever. And none of those are in the Bible. None of them are. Now that doesn't—look, some of those are fine ideas for plenty of us, right? I'm not recommending that you go out from here and make that your Sunday afternoon to-do list. Um, Some of those rules were put in place to try to— keep people away from sins like drunkenness or being wasteful with money. Some of those rules are, you know, good advice if you want to, to be healthy and avoid things that are unhealthy. And for plenty of people, some of those rules might be fine. But the thing is, I often talk to people, and those are the things that they treat as the most deep, enduring, you know, important parts of Christianity. In the first place, they're far more worried about those rules than the things that Scripture ultimately says— calling us to love and humility and joy and generosity and selflessness. And more than that, they're more worried about those rules than the call to Jesus himself. I mean, it's so common to have this conversation for me where it's like, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I mean, you could come to church sometime if you want. And like, I don't know, you know, pastor, like I, I cuss sometimes and I play poker and I just want to be like, but what do you think about Jesus, right? And what, what, what do you think about sin? And the salvation that he's worked. Because if you're not thinking about those things, just thinking about the rules isn't going to connect you to those deepest and most eternal things. All human rules are destined to pass away. And even God's law, in a sense, is destined to change in how we relate to it. Which, again, we're going to get to a little more in a minute. But while there's a sense in which it will endure, our relation to it will also change. All right? That's the first limitation of the law, Paul says, is that it's temporary. And then second, Paul says, the law cannot restrain sin. The law has no power to restrain sin. Making rules and trying to keep them cannot alter our sinful hearts or can't really even ultimately change our actions. 
So if you look at verse 5, he says, For when we were in the realm of flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. All right? We're going to touch on that sinful passions in a minute. But when you look at that, he says, We were in the realm of flesh. We were, without Jesus, trapped in our old humanity. And while we were there, it was our sinful passions at work in us, and we ultimately bore the fruit of death. And what's important to realize, when Paul's saying we there, he's not talking about, like, you know, those pagans out there. He starts in verse 1, he says, I'm writing this part to those of you who are under the law, to those of you who are religious. And he says, we were this way. We knew the rules but we were still trapped in the realm of flesh, slaves to sin and bearing the fruit of unrighteousness. The law apparently has no power to change any of that. If we're fond of treating the law as eternal, I think we're even more fond of using the law to try to change people. Thinking that if we just hammered the rules enough, if we just put enough of the fear of God into people, and not the like reverent biblical fear of God, but the other kind, if we just beat people into shape with our values and morals, that they would change. There are two problems ultimately with that approach that Paul is reminding us of. In the first place, that's just not how people work, and I know that because I know the rules, but I still sin. But on a deeper level, even when that approach seems to work, Even when using the law to change people does seem to reform behavior, it's not actually making people righteous. It's just causing them to exchange one sin for another. This is why Jesus insists in that parable that there are two brothers, and you don't want to be either one. The prodigal son is a sinner, absolutely, But so is the elder brother, the good son. He is a sinner too. It's just that his sins, instead of being about prostitutes and parties, are sins of self-righteousness and pride and bitterness and selfishness. Sins that are maybe more respectable and easy to hide, but sins that are just as evil. Jesus isn't interested in making us Pharisees. He is interested in making people soft-hearted and selfless, and humble, and loving, and you cannot use rules to force someone to be any of those things. One more limit of the law that Paul lists, and this is perhaps the most striking. He goes even further than just that it can't restrain sin and argues that the law sometimes breeds sin, that the law left to itself breeds sin. So in verse 7, Paul asks, is the law evil? And he says, no, and we'll come back to that. But then here's what he says happens. He says, the law says, do not covet, and he hears that. And then verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Here's what Paul's picturing. He's saying he reads the law and it says, do not covet. And he thinks, well, I shouldn't covet. What sorts of things shouldn't I covet? Well, like, I shouldn't covet my neighbor's house. Boy, that's a nice house. And he really doesn't deserve that house. I wish I had that house instead of him. Somehow, even hearing the command, Paul says, would give him occasion for sin. And so this is what Paul says happens In verses 10 and 11, he says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. 
Back in the early 2000s, the federal government launched this massive anti-drug ad campaign. I remember these ads, but it spent a billion dollars on advertisements targeted at teenagers, trying to get them to not do drugs. And after five years of the campaign, they commissioned a study to see how well it had worked. And what they found is that among those teens that viewed the ads, drug use became substantially more likely. It actually went up by, by seeing these ads. And the reason seems to be that while the advertisements weren't very good at getting kids not to do drugs, they were very good at getting kids thinking about drugs in general and very good making them thinking about the other people that did drugs. And some of them ended up going out and experimenting. And Paul is saying that the law in itself can actually do that. That if we try to use it to make people change, what we might actually do is encourage them to sin. And frankly, I just feel like my own experience bears that out. I think about like, like I grew up in the church and grew up with church kids and went off to college with a lot of them, right? And we all knew the rules, but for a substantial number of us, those rules actually made some of the sins seem more attractive, right? They were the forbidden fruit. They were um, a chance to rebel. I mean, I, I did some of that, and I'm sure that some of you have done the same. And that doesn't mean that we should teach our kids God's law, because we should, and we'll get to that. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it ourselves. We should, and we'll get to that. But it just means that we need to think long and hard about what Paul is saying here. That we need to make sure we understand that it is not just teaching our kids good morals and God's rules that will create obedience. And that sometimes, in fact, Paul would say it can actually do the opposite. So that's Paul's argument against trying to create righteousness by the law. The law, he says, has these crucial limitations. It's not eternal, it cannot ultimately restrain sin, and sometimes it even breeds it. Now in just a minute, I want to talk about the better way that Paul puts forward as opposed to the law. But before we do, I think we need to clarify everything that we've just said, all right? Because in this chapter, Paul's focused on one specific argument. We can, we can hear all of that and think, okay, if that's true, then, then like, is the law evil? <laughs> you know, why, why in the world did God give us this thing? And all of what we just said does not mean that there aren't good uses of God's law. Um, in fact, Paul makes that point a couple of times in our text. He says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Or verses 12 and 13, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. In fact, Paul kind of hints at two good uses of the law here in Romans 7. First, he says the law does make us aware of our sin and need. It does make us aware of our sin and need. So if you read all of verse 13, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin... It used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the command might, sin might become utterly sinful. So God's law does, as we learn it, make us recognize how disobedient of it we are and how far short of it we fall. And second, God's law reveals God's will to us. God's law does reveal God's will for how we should want to act. So if you read all of verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. So when we ask, what does it look like to live a righteous life? 
we can find guidance in God's law that part of the answer to that is you should not covet, and we can learn that there. But here's the crucial thing, all right? Even with that said, the reason that Paul is saying everything that he does up until now, because what he's saying there, he's saying the law can show us our sin, and the law can show us what righteousness looks like, but what it cannot do is move you from here to here. What it cannot do is actually create righteousness in us. And trying to use it to do that, as much as it has good uses, will be destructive instead of life-giving. So then how do we get from here to here? How do we change and seek righteousness? Well, Paul starts to answer that question in our text as well. And its fuller answer will wait until Romans 8 and this glorious proclamation of God's work in Christ, which chapter 7 is setting up. But he gives us some hints of it, all right? For Paul, he says, we must be dead both to sin and to the law so that we can live in the Spirit. So that we can live in the Spirit. So if you look at verse 6, Paul says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. Which doesn't mean, I think a lot of people read that and think that means we follow the Spirit of the law, not the letter. And it's true that we should follow the Spirit of God's law and not just the letter, right? But you'll notice that word Spirit is capitalized. And that's because for Paul, when he's talking about the Spirit, he's almost talking about the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says we serve in the new way of the Spirit... He means that we're seeking obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit and experiencing his presence. That rather than trying to use the law to motivate obedience, we're being shaped and motivated by the Holy Spirit working in us. He gets at a similar idea in verse 4. He says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit. For God. So we now belong not to the law, but to Jesus, who rose victoriously from the dead and who is at work in us. The power of Jesus' resurrection is at work in us. And that is the power that starts to create righteousness. And it says that that causes us to bear fruit for God, which is actually a really helpful image. If you think about bearing fruit, trees don't make apples by deciding to make apples. They don't make apples because there's some rules giving them an apple quota that they feel obligated to fulfill. They make apples because they are alive. Fruit isn't the product of some law, but it is the product of life. And that is the same for a relationship with God and righteousness. Paul is not arguing in this text that the law is evil or bad, right? God's law, he says, is holy and righteous and good. But we, in ourselves, are not. And the problem with attempts to inspire obedience through the law is not the goal. It's good and appropriate to encourage people to obedience, but the means really matter. And they matter because the means that God gives us to change, um, to change are not the law. The law can show us our failure and it can show us what success looks like, but what we need are God-given means to then be changed. So what are those means? 
Well, there's two levels on which you can answer that. On one level, the means are God's ultimate supernatural work in our hearts. It's the experience of the grace that he shows us in the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Lord kind of working in us and the life of Christ in us. But on another level, historically, the church has talked about this idea of means of grace. The means of grace. And there are certain things that somehow connect us to that deeper work of God. That they connect us to his gracious power. That God is at work in us, and he is helping us, and he is starting to grow us in righteousness if we are his. He's pouring out life into us, but there are things that we can do to try to get in the way of that life and to soak it up. And so the means of grace, as the church has talked about them, trying to summarize scripture. The first one is scripture itself, that the Bible is a means of grace. And that in particular, the gospel, the story that scripture proclaims of God's salvation for us, is a means of grace. Right? Not just that you like read a Bible verse and there's some kind of magic righteousness that happens, but that as you, as you learn the story of scripture and see the salvation that God works there and see yourself in that story— that it starts to change you. As you sit in that over and over, God begins to work. Another means of grace the church has long recognized is prayer. If in scripture we hear God's voice and God's story in prayer, we have the experience of talking with him and hearing from him. And just like in reading scripture, we're not talking about like, you know, you shoot off your laundry list up to heaven in 30 seconds and then get on with life, right? We're talking about a sort of sitting in prayer and experiencing God's presence that just in doing that starts to change us and starts to help us experience God's power at work in us. Another means of grace is the church. That includes things like the sacraments, historically, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and it includes the ways that prayer and scripture are woven into our lives together, but it also just includes us, each other, that part of the way that God works in us is through the community of faith, and as we see people pursuing Jesus and seeking to grow more like him, and as we are challenged and encouraged and prayed for and just spending time with fellow believers, that we are shaped in ways that grow us up in righteousness. And I know that none of that list is news to us, right? If you just boil it down to saying like, well, well, the means of grace are like reading your Bible and praying and being a part of the church, right? That doesn't That's not news to anybody that those are good things. But what's so crucial is what we've just said in recognizing that those aren't good things because those are more laws, right? Those aren't good things because they're like getting us holiness points or they're the like religious nonsense that we're just expected to do as Christians. They're good things because they are ways that we are connecting ourselves to God's power and experiencing his work changing us. That those are actually means of grace to us and ways that we are grown in righteousness. If I could put that and really put the whole idea a little differently, the power for change comes from those things that connect us to the Father's love. The problem in that parable of the two sons is that both sons try to live lives separated from the love of the Father. One does it in a very obvious external way, going off to a foreign land and leaving him behind. The other one stays and works hard, but is still keeping his father at arm's length. He's still a slave instead of a son. But when the father invites that older son into the party, he still resents and resists it, right? He's worked to try to earn the father's wages, not because he's known that love. 
with the parable of the prodigal son and the elder brother, and what Paul's warning against the law both ultimately call us to is to stop running or stop trying to do it on our own, but rather to stop running and stop working and experience the love of God. We are not changed by acting like we are God's slaves. We are changed um, by experiencing his embrace, by having him put his ring and robe on us and draw us into the party, coming into the feast. And so that is what we are called to ultimately, to come in and taste of it. Because we are there one way or another. We come to the Father and tell him we'll be his dutiful servant, and he won't hear of it. Instead, he'll respond like that father in the parable. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate, for this child of mine was dead and is alive again, is lost and is found. So they began to celebrate, and are calling is to come in and join the feast. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I pray that you would grow us in righteousness, you would grow me in righteousness, but I pray that you would do it um, and teach me to seek it through your love and grace, that in experiencing you and your presence, I and we might all be changed. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, whose great work has begun to work righteousness in us. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing God's praises?